I cannot wait to dive into these four comics because they are freaking fascinating. Live from the Talking Joe Studios, it's Talking Joe. Talking Joe is weekly podcast. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. Our podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the code name for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. If you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Today we are continuing our look at the G.I. Joe disavowed era, The Devil's Due Run, and we are talking G.I. Joe Frontline, issues one to four, the mission that never was, from Devil's Due back in 2002. It is the arc that marks the comeback from Larry Hammer to the G.I. Joe property after about eight years away. Now, without further ado, let's introduce my co-hosts on point. It's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. Hello, Tim. You sound uh, like you're in a room that has got good soundproofing. Um, I am visiting my brother. This is a so in June. Uh, uh, we went to see my wife's family, and uh, now we're seeing my family. I'm in Maryland, uh, both in near Baltimore and near uh, DC. I'm in my brother's basement, where he watches movies, and it is oh. set up for good sound. Excellent. So on the on the trip back, then you review your visit and mark it out of ten. <laughs> uh, it's great so far. It's seeing a bunch of family. <laughs> I, we're seeing a, a, a special movie tonight. I get it. Say no more. Um, uh, and here comes the tail end, Charlie. It's GOJ. It's Jay Cordray. Howdy, Joe fans. Hey, Jay. What's happening, Mark? What's happening, Tim? You guys ready to talk some Joe? I'm always ready. Always ready. I have so much to say about this first arc of Frontline. So this is the first time that us three got together since... uh, uh, Actually, it's not, but... (laughs) Since our highly successful interview with Josh Blaylock. Yeah, let's pretend it is. Yeah, it's the first first time, for sure. And uh, yeah, great, uh, great to get the feedback from from Josh. Um, that was really um, nice. Yeah, I said it's his favorite interview ever. <laughs> so uh, lovely to hear. Hey, we should add that in our in our tagline where you say the best and longest running G.I. Joe podcast. That's also the favorite interview by Josh Blaylock. Hmm. Yeah. Might be a little long for disavowed. 
right? His tagline <laughs> could be like, my favorite G.I. Joe interview I've done, Josh Blaylock. And we could make, we could make it seem like he's listened to all of our Disavowed episodes <laughs> and that he's he's endorsing the entire run of our Disavowed episodes yeah. as opposed to the episode where we spoke with him. And also mm. in, <laughs> endorsing our opinions on every issue. Mm. Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know how that's going to go over. Yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah, the, the problem might be is that Joshua enjoys uh, that that episode so much that he goes and seeks out every single uh, ep- uh, review that we've done of the Disavowed Era, and, and then uh, and then starts crying. Um, I'll put in so. a plug to our and then listeners. That Twitter gets retracted. <laughs> I, re- I retract my previous endorsements <laughs> to our listeners. If you only listen to our regular episodes and you don't watch the videos live stream where we look at art or listen to the special episodes where we do extra interviews. Do not miss the episode where we interview Josh Blaylock. I'm not just saying that because I'm one third of the people doing the questioning. It was a really good episode. Super interesting. I'm so glad to have been a part of it. And if you're a GI Joe comics reader, this is something uh, that you want to have listened to. I think one of our comments on uh, possibly YouTube summed it up the best he said something like um he, he learned all kinds of stuff he never knew he needed to learn about that era mm. and you yeah. know and it just really got a lot out of it i think a lot of people got a lot of, out of it i know i did so uh, like you said it was really cool to, to 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 get to hang out and talk to josh and uh, you know also for him later to, to say it was a good interview for him too so we should spend the next two hours talking about how great our previous episode was rather than, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm less interested in talking about Frontline 1, 2, 3, and 4 than about how great a previous episode of our show was. <laughs> should we just keep doing that? Yeah. Wow. Um, and then, guys, are you, uh, you've both seen Snake Eyes. You want to give us a little bit of reaction, spoiler-free reaction, and, uh, and you're heading out again to go see it a second time, so kind of been too bad. Tim, I'll let um, you go first. Lots of fun. Saw it opening night with uh, the misses, some of my employees, some friends, and uh, am doing my my due diligence as a as a GI Joe fan. Tonight I'm taking uh, my wife again, my brother, his girlfriend. My brother likes GI Joe and likes movies, but he doesn't go see movies in the theater. He waits for them at home. So this mm-hmm. is a this is a, a special event for me. Cool. And Jay? I went a couple days. Uh, I think I went Tuesday, Tuesday at, at the like a noon showing or something. And there was uh, me and like a group of five people in a the theater. So uh, that was really nice. It was quiet. Got to got to hear everything and see everything. Actually, they did have the lights were still turned on in the theater almost Oof. to the to the credits. And, um, you know, I was sitting there thinking, OK, they'll they'll t- they'll dim these eventually. And finally, one of the people from the other group of went and, and told them to turn the lights down and they did turn the lights down. I came in, I told Mark, I came in just a few minutes late, uh, but I did, did catch the very beginning scene. So I didn't really miss anything there. I enjoyed it. I, I really, really went in thinking that I wasn't going to like it. Um, I, I was expecting to, to actually come home and, and write a scathing review, which I would probably then delete as soon as I posted. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, I ended up liking it. It's, it's completely different. It's that's all I'll say is this is a different character. It's a different story. And you just got to go with that. Um, mm. Henry Golding is so likable, even in parts when he shouldn't be likable. You're just like, <laughs> I can't not like this movie because this guy is so likable. And uh, and Andrew Andrew Koji as Storm Shadow, same thing. He was excellent. 
Very good. Very good. Um, I saw um, Larry, Larry Hammer posted a brilliant thing today, which is, um, it's not your snake eyes, it's my snake eyes. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Like I said, I, I went uh, Tuesday. I'm going, uh, like Tim, I'm going again tonight, taking the kids to go see it tonight. Uh, so yeah. hopefully we can, uh, and, and including even one little kid. So hopefully, um, you know, we'll, we'll try to spread that love and, and, and help the franchise and, and, and grow it to, to new fans. For our listeners wondering why we haven't talked about it more thoroughly on the show, Mark, of course, is in the UK. The movie has not been released there yet. And so we can't have a fair review, the three of us, until all three of us have seen it. Yeah, I mean, I already feel like we've probably spoiled a little too much. I, I don't want to <laughs> say say too much to, to ruin anything for Mark. Um, I've probably done my fair, fair share of spoiling by looking at some of like the uh, the trailers and little mini fitch featurettes and things. So and just seeing people's into. comments on Facebook was why I went Tuesday and didn't wait until this weekend because mm, I was yeah, like, yeah. I have to go. I, you know, I, there's just you know because of the show and everything else. I'm on Facebook at least a couple times a day just checking stuff and you know how how do you how do you not see stuff? So I had to go see it, uh, and I you know I, I just for my own for my own curiosity I wanted to go see it. Now that we've uh, talked about the movie without talking about the movie, should we talk about how great our interview with Josh Blaylock was? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, can we, uh, Mark, do you have an opening thing for Frontline? I so want to talk about this art. Yeah, let's do it. We're going to talk about coming from Devil's Jew. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, Frontline! Frontline! This is Frontline, issues 1 to 4, October 2002 to February 2003. This was released around about the same time as the Malfunction arc, so uh, issues 11 to 14 were... Uh, the issues from the main series that was running in parallel uh, with uh, story Larry the man a hammer uh, pencils Dan Jurgens that guy from the death of Superman inks Bob Layton and Scott Hanna colors hi-fi color design letters dreamer design edits Scott Whirl and graphic design Mike Norton so should we look at uh, some covers first Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. So, uh, covers one, two, three, the main covers are by Dave Dorman. We've got, uh, which we'll talk about a bit more in, in a bit, we've got uh, issue four from David Michael Beck. That's uh, Storm Shadow jumping, sword aloft with the large head of Baroness in the background, capturing the moment that she stood on some Lego. Um, and then we've got some variant covers as well. Uh, issue one, cover B from Kevin Sharp and issue one, Dynamic Forces Retailer Exclusive. Uh, also from Kevin Sharp, by the looks of things, unless I've written that down wrong. So um, I'm gonna start in an unusual place and then go to a familiar place. The cover for 1B, by Kevin Sharp and John Larder um, is the Joes from this story arc uh, coming at you, the Cobra characters from this story arc, and um, at sort of a, a, a billowy explosion behind them. And yet 
very smartly, the entire background is dark red, and several of the further back characters are knocked back in red. This is a little bit of a movie poster where you've got characters together in full body action and then some you know, heads and shoulders around them. What's really striking to me about this cover is that um, Kevin Sharp, who um, is not a comics artist that I have tracked very much, but he's done a little art for G.I. Joe here and there. Kevin Sharp here, to me, looks like he's looking at Brandon Peterson from like 1996. And at that time, Brandon Peterson was definitely mm. looking at Michael Golden from like 1993. Mm -hmm. And so subtly in some of the inking here, on the particularly on the left side, there's, uh, I think it's Hawk all the way on the left. And then I'm not sure who it yeah, is. Juggler, I don't know if it's supposed yeah. to be a juggler. Um, okay, someone behind Snake Eyes' hand. Uh, the inking on those uh, faces looks to me like uh, Michael Golden. Mm -hmm. Not that he did it, but that's the reference. But the, the, the really exciting part about the regular covers for one, two, and three is that Dave Dorman already had an association with G.I. Joe. He had painted covers for the quarterly G.I. Joe magazine that was published by Welsh around 86, 87. And he had done a bunch of paintings internally for Hasbro uh, for presentation, for uh, people in Hasbro pitching figures, people in R&D pitching the figures along with marketing to the higher-ups, to the vice presidents. Uh, there, there are some on my website, A Real American Book. Just do a search term for Dorman. And, but this is for all of Dave Dorman's comics work, right? He's known for painting a lot of Star Wars covers for Dark Horse. He uh, had a creator-owned uh, special that he painted the cover, and I can't remember if he drew or painted the interiors around uh, 2001. For all of this association with G.I. Joe and comics, he had never painted a G.I. Joe comic image. And so these three covers, just for that association, is really exciting. I love his uh, texture on uh, Destro's helmet for issue two. Um, I love seeing these familiar characters with this familiar but unfamiliar uh, a brush under uh, Dorman. At the same time, um, I think his compositions could be a little stronger. It looks like it looks like these want to be magazine covers with a lot more room for type. There's a lot of negative space around the characters on one and three. Uh, and I'd also like the covers to be a little more specific to the issues. Um, but super exciting, uh, good paintings. Great to see these characters uh, under. Uh, by Dorman's hand. Yeah, I remember when they were coming out. I was very excited to see uh, Dave Dave Dorman covers uh, featuring, you know, on the covers here. You know, having seen his his work uh, on particularly Star Wars Dark Dark Empire, um, and yeah, that that sort of you know really nice uh, painterly uh, pedigree. Uh, you know, on on a GI Joe cover that. Um, up to this point, hasn't seen an awful lot of covers done in in that that style, really. Uh, sort of David Michael Beck aside, who who's on on cover for, yeah, uh, uh, it's one of I think the the highlights uh, definitely for me at the time was uh, was was seeing these uh, these covers on the book and a yeah good way of generating uh, some additional excitement as well about the uh, the launch of the new series. Absolutely agree. Always been a fan of Dave Dorman, a big fan. Actually, I, I met him a couple times, got him to sign a bunch of Star Wars and Alien stuff for me. 
so yeah, it's really nice seeing seeing his work here. Uh, like Tim said, there's some rough spots, but I, I just love his textures and stuff. It, seeing anything from him, especially around this period, just puts me in mind of those Dark Empire covers. Uh, what's interesting to me about the Frontline series, just when we're looking at the front covers, is that they went with that logo with the stars and kind of the embossed look all over the whole thing. That was interesting. Yeah. That's right, the, the logo from the toy line in 2003. And I think this is a smart decision. I think from a brand, uh, brand management, brand identity perspective, I think it's a little confusing, but it's, I think it's also a smart decision so that if you're flipping through a box of comics at a comic book store, and you're only seeing the top of the covers flipping through with your index fingers, um, even without the word frontline uh, at the top of these covers, because it's on the bottom, uh, you can tell immediately that these G.I. Joe comics are somehow different from the main Devil's Due series. I'm old-fashioned, and I think that despite the like sort of modern rules of logo branding, uh, I, you know, I love the original G.I. Joe Special Missions logo from 87, where Special Missions is very big and it's all at the top. If you were to launch that book now, you'd have G.I. Joe take up the top quarter and you'd put Special Missions very small under it or like these frontline covers all the way on the bottom. And as a person who both has filed comics in a comic book store and also a person who has looked for back issues in other comic book stores, it's a little hard when you're flipping through back issue bins to figure mm. out which G.I. Joe series is which if the, the spin-off title, the subtitle, is all the way on the bottom. It also adds a compositional element that the cover has to contend with where the artist already knows that the top third or the top quarter is, you know, don't put anything important up there. You know, it, mm. it, but those are sort of the rules, right? In 2003, you, you make the G.I. Joe logo really big and important and it's G.I. Joe, you know, Antarctica or G.I. Joe uh, Outer Space Missions or G.I. Joe Classic, whatever it is. And put that curiously on the bottom, enough, they, they only take this, uh, this starred logo as far as issue five with issue six, they revert to G.I. Joe, a real American hero looking very much like the main book with the front line on the bottom so uh less less of a signifier to help you as you're flicking through the long boxes without pulling them out and double checking what's at the at the bottom of the cover unfortunately that's one of those questions that i would like to ask josh blaylock or someone else who was at devil's due at the time that i you know why, why did the logo change uh for issue one why did it change back after issue five that i can imagine <laughs> exactly yeah. no one really remembering that's a question that I want to ask so I know I tried and then I'd have to be satisfied that I probably wouldn't get an answer. And also I feel like we could guess. Like someone at Hasbro was probably like, no, use this logo because it's for the toys and we're trying to sell the toys. And then someone else said, eh, it should look like the comics. I, it's it's over-designed. There's, there's surface upon surface, every little, you know, the outline, the red outline, there's a red outline around G.I. Joe. Uh, inside the black outline, and all of those are beveled. The star has, you know, different planes. It's just too busy. We don't need all that stuff for the G.I. Joe logo. G.I. Joe logo is perfect. It's like Coke or Pepsi or I love New York. It's don't <laughs> touch it. You don't need to. There, There is, I, I agree that it's, uh, it's a more active logo than I need for G.I. Joe. I appreciate that for the roughly 2003 toy line, if they felt the need to like change the logo, they didn't go further than this. 
Um, I do like that it solves, this does solve a problem because if you're going to have the red, white, and blue yeah. stripes shooting from the E, you either mm -hmm. need them to go all the way off the image, off the cover, off the package at the right side, or you have them end. And when that happens, that always looks bad. And with these stars, it has a reason for the stripes to end. And also by having the stars offset from each other, it creates some dynamism. The white, the white stripe, the white star has gotten a little further and the stars are smartly italicized the same as the five letters. And you know me, I don't like it when the five letters of G.I. Joe are not italicized <laughs> at the same angle as the subtitle, A Real American Hero. And wouldn't you know, this subtitle here in yellow, A Real American Hero, A, too small, B, to Jay's point, just take it out, not necessary. C, um, not italicized at the same angle as the five yeah. letters above it. You just look at this stuff sometimes, and, and like I said, it's... You know, somebody spent at least an afternoon on that. You just don't need to. You don't need to. How do you guys feel about the cover to issue four? I love it. Really, really like it. I don't know what it has to do with the story at all, but as far as a piece <laughs> of artwork, I love it. That's probably my that's probably my favorite Beck painting. Yeah, it's it's nice, and yeah, it, it you know it, it captures the anguish of standing on a Lego brick, as I say. Yeah, yeah, she's um, she's got it. She's nailed it. I'm a little sad that Dorman was uh, yeah. didn't do yeah, all just, four exactly. just for the just for uniformity. But for Plan B, oh, the the guy who's now like the sort of the new GI Joe painter that everyone knows, who Devils Do already has a relationship with. You know that that's a good. I think now um, that I look at this, B. that it does have something to do with the story because look at all the. Uh, the focused electricity behind her head. I think that's kind of an implication towards their brainwave scannering that's been going mm, on. Could be, couldn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always assumed she's laughing like a villain, but in this moment, I'm thinking she's being zapped by the brainwave scanner and or she's feeling anguish. Something. <laughs> something. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump to the insides. Oh, you know what? Wait, sorry. Can we just for a moment talk about the oh, back crikey. covers? What's on the back covers? Aren't they just kind of... Are they close-ups so, of the interiors? Yeah, yeah. So all four back covers are um, blow-ups of portions of panels uh, drawn by uh, Jurgens uh, and then um, Le uh, Leighton or Hannah and uh, cropped, in to, uh, uh, mm -hmm. cropped in dramatic ways. Um, and I think it, it's, it's a Photoshop filter, uh, yeah. but it's supposed to look as if it is a, um, a close-up scan of a printed page such that you yeah. see the Ben Day dots, the color dots of uh, printing screens. And then on the bottom, there's the, the indicia for Hasbro. And this is, this is a different treatment. You know, in the main series, we're getting new art that costs money from David Michael Beck. We're not getting an ad for image books that are, you know, you could get otherwise. We're not getting ads for other Devil's Do stuff. This is just a small artistic statement. It's just a little bit of graphic design. It's really nice flourish. It's a, uh, it's a, it's, it's only the bad guys. It's um, Storm Shadow, Destro, Cover Commander, and Baroness, and I really like it. And I wish that the current IDW issues would do something like this because the current IDW issues have really boring mm. back covers. It's just black with the GI Joe mm. logo on it. Like, give me some art. Just re redo a panel from inside. Do two panels from inside in black and white. 
do the cover smaller without the color, do something, do something like this, blow up a panel. So, all right, Jay, plot breakdown. Year is 1995. The jugglers have disbanded the G.I. Joe team and mothballed the pit, but not before handing General Abernathy, codenamed Hawk, one last mission. The Joe team has been tasked with transporting a targeting module for Joel Colton's particle beam from Utah to New York City. In Washington, D.C., a Cobra agent plants a bug in one of the jugglers' hats, allowing Cobra Commander to find out the true use of the targeting module. With the new module, the particle beam projector can be used for long-range brainwashing. Cobra launches an attack on the train now carrying the Joes in the targeting module, but the Joes are able to defeat them. Zartan and the Dreadnoughts destroy the tracks in front of the train, causing it to derail. The Joes escape the train on a pair of awestrikers. Hawk is wounded in the firefight, and Duke takes command. Reaching the Georgia coast, the Joes hitch a ride to New York City on a patrol boat from a fellow Vietnam veteran. Destro catches up to the Joes, but Hawk calls General Colton, who shoots Destro's condor with the particle beam projector. However, Destro catches up with the Joes when they arrive in New York City, attacking them at the docks. Destro manages to escape with a targeting module for the particle beam projector. The Joe team follows Destro to his castle in Transcarpathia, while the other Joes lay down cover fire and a tomahawk. Snake Eyes and Scarlet wage a full frontal assault on the castle and an all-striker. Destro blasts the all-striker to bits with his wrist rockets. The other Joes pick up Scarlet and the tomahawk, but Snake Eyes is left behind, seemingly unconscious. Storm Shadow realizes the Joes are using Snake Eyes as a Trojan horse and leads the other cobras to find his body, but it's too late. Snake Eyes is in the castle. Snake Eyes discovers the location of the targeting module and marks it for General Hawk. Snake Eyes then uses the castle's defenses to clear a path for the other Joes. Storm Shadow attacks Snake Eyes and the two fight at the gates of the castle. Hawk calls Joel Colton, asking for a laser to shoot down the targeting device, but the jugglers try to stop Colton. Jane and Joe attack the jugglers and fire the shot. Destro realizes the Joes may try this and moves the console, making the laser miss. Following Cobra Commander's order, Destro plugs the console into the computer system. Back in New York, Colton finds out the whole mission was a setup. The targeting module was just a device to deliver a virus into Cobra's systems, and the Joe team has once again been used as pawns by the jugglers. So I'm curious, uh, which of you have read this before? Because I read it when it came out. I was super excited before it came out. I reread it coincidentally a year ago, and then I forgot it, and I have read it for this episode. Mark, had you read this before? Yeah, I, I read it as it came out. Like, like you said, you know, Return of Larry Hammer, super excited at the time. I remember feeling underwhelmed at the at the time, but haven't read it since. Um, so yeah, it's almost twenty years on since I I last read it. I think, and yeah, was quite excited to come back to it. You know, rediscover it for the first time and see you know how my reaction was coming to it, without really a very strong memory of of you know what it was. So I hadn't read it before. Uh, this was the first time for me. I guess I'm kind of with. Mark, I was a little underwhelmed. There are spots of it that I thought was really good. And I think that it kind of it's interesting that that Larry had four issues to tell this story. Compare this four issues to reinstated how much stuff Blaylock tried to cram in in four issues there. But this was a much more focused just on this one mission. So I think that helped a lot. It flowed really well. But there were um, yeah, there were some things that I really didn't like about it. Uh, We'll kind of get into those. Just just off the top, that's this is the first time for me and kind of underwhelmed. So to set the scene a little bit, um, it's it's 2002. Uh, I have read the first two arcs 
of the Devil's Due Run, right? I, as we keep saying, as we keep reminding our listeners, I didn't like issue one and I have a letter printed in issue three stating that fact. And the, as much as I love the Mike Zek covers for the second arc, the story left me uh, less interested. So I dropped the book and I, I can't remember if I read Malfunction or not, but uh, with this arc, I thought, oh, they're, they're correcting their mistake, right? They should have hired Hama to write the continuation of the Hama series. Maybe if this arc does really well, they'll get him to do some other stuff, but I am A, certainly on board for these four issues, and B, um, interested in where this series goes after Hama because it's going to be rotating teams, you know, of writers and artists doing, you know, two or three issue arcs, and they won't have to sort of work necessarily in the current Devil's Due continuity, so I can just enjoy them on their own, right? If, if you don't if you don't love Batman and Detective Comics in 1989, you can read Legends of the Dark Knight because that's these self-contained arcs. The other thing that made me excited about this, besides the return of Hama, is that it was going to maybe fill in some important gap after issue 155. What I didn't realize is how much of this was going to be sort of headed toward Devil's Due issue 1, and... The other thing that was super exciting about this, which I still feel in rereading this, even if it's not my favorite G.I. Joe arc, Dan Jurgens drawing G.I. Joe is such a good fit for me. So Dan Jurgens had drawn for DC since the, I believe, early 80s. Um, if not early 80s, certainly mid 80s, right? He drew Blue Beetle. Uh, he comes on to Superman um, after the John Byrne era is over. Uh, although that continuity was continuing, right? Jurgens writes and pencils Superman from, I don't know, roughly issue like 30 or 40 to like, uh, I forget, 200 or something, 150, right? And um, Jurgens, though he was a DC guy, he draws in what I would consider a very pleasant, recognizable, uh, this is not an insult, this is a compliment, like middle of the road, Marvel house style, circa 1985, American adventure style. It looks like Bob McCloud. I don't mean Bob McCloud inking G.I. Joe. I mean Bob McCloud like penciling New Mutants, Bob McCloud's three issues of Spider-Man. It looks like Bob Layton. It looks like Ron Wilson. It looks like Ron Wagner. It looks like Mark Bright. Dan Jurgens, though, he's known for superhero stuff because of Superman and then also like uh, Blue Beetle or oh, uh, Booster Gold, right? If I if I said Blue Beetle before, I meant Booster Gold. And um, even though Jurgens is known for superhero and not you know sort of realistic action, his his shapes, his proportions, his acting, his storytelling, it just feels like it's like he should have always been drawing GI Joe, right? Like I can imagine a world where you show a bunch of Dan Jurgens comics to someone who likes Ron Wagner and they don't really know artists and they're like, oh, that's that's Ron Wagner. So I was really excited that Bob Layton is inking it, right? So here's a guy, Layton, who is very much a Marvel 80s, like, house-style guy, right? For writing, co-writing, and also inking a lot of Iron Man, uh, and in some cases, penciling and inking a lot of Iron Man around the Mark Bright run, right? So a sideways G.I. Joe connection. Having him ink is really exciting. When he leaves after two issues, uh, Scott Hanna Scott Hanna, I think, learned to ink from John Romita. I remember reading that in a Marvel magazine once. But, you know, he'd been around doing a lot of Marvel work. And then Hi-Fi Design is doing the colors. And by this point, I don't like their colors on the main book. But they do something really fascinating here 
they color all of the characters and the vehicles with just sort of two colors or three colors, like a base color, a shadow, and a highlight. And then it's the backgrounds and the effects, like smoke and explosions, that have a lot of highlights and rendering. So this should have really, really worked for me. And my top down, both from 2002 and also now, is that it doesn't quite work. Thanks, Tim. That's, um, I think, a uh, spot-on summary of, of kind of what I think was playing through through my mind as 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 well sort of uh my sort of reaction to to this um the the Dan Jurgens art and and um you know that sort of muscular arts style to it very superhero and and not too far off you know quite modern Ron 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 Wagner particularly uh, as we've seen him more recently in in the IDW um ARAR books and yeah very much looking forward to it so much of it felt like it it should work, but but not quite hitting uh, the the high notes that that you know we all hoped for. Um, there's a lot there that seems sort of very designed to trigger a certain kind of nostalgia there, um, or kind of almost you know serve as a greatest hits. You know, in terms of uh, you know the characters that that we're seeing getting in. You know, Destro, Baroness, Storm Shadow. We've got Snake Eyes and uh, Storm Shadow face facing off. Uh, we've getting, you know, got some uh, callbacks to some favourite vehicles here and here and there. But but it, it not, despite all of that, it not necessarily all coming uh, to, together. And I, I think uh, I've got a good idea as to why that is. I think I think Larry Hama has told us why that is. But uh, Mark, if you've got it, this is this is the like elephant in the room of GI Joe Frontline one through four. Yeah, so I've got I've got the quote from uh, Larry, which um, I've extracted from uh, an interview he gave on a site called uh, Zaki's Corner, and I think the the high level is that he didn't necessarily enjoy the experience of writing this and and the sort of editorial control that was exercised here. So he says uh, most comic book companies they want to tell you what the next whole arc is oh what's the next four issues which is what they did to me at devil's due they said we want you to submit this for the summer you know another four issues and i said i can't do that and they said well then you can't do it because that's how we got to work and i said but that violates completely my methodology for doing the stories those were like probably the worst four issues i ever wrote because they i had to write this outline and was stuck forcing these characters into that plot. And at times it just, they didn't want to do it. The characters just didn't want to do it. Um, so, so I think it's this, this style of, of dictating the story up front, you know, for the solicits and, and to get the editorial agreement, and then following that, that plot doggedly rather than letting the story take, uh, take the author, you know, from page to, to page naturally and, going against the grain you know not necessarily enjoying that writing experience um as he went along and i think that probably comes through in terms of how then we as the the reader experience it and there's just seems to be something slightly out of kilter that you know he's he's kind of going by the numbers to follow follow this plot rather than really have a you know deliver a story that would you know be in the classic mold of uh, of Larry Hammer. 
I would have enjoyed the story a lot more if not for like one particular thing. And I'll just say that right now. Least favorite character in the entire Devil's Due continuity is Scarlet, which is ridiculous mm. because Scarlet is one of my absolute favorite characters. It's oh, she's so terrible in here. And I I I feel like they told, you know, Larry, do this with Scarlet. You got to you got to work us toward this. It felt so unnatural. Everything. I'm just like, this is Larry writing Scarlet this way. Oh, mm. uh, if you cut all that stuff out, cut those two out completely. Actually, yeah, cut out Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow. Cut all three of them out. Then I would enjoy this <laughs> a lot more. This would get a higher rating for me, minus my favorite characters. Yeah, I was my next bullet on my on my notes was actually the, exactly the same thing that that Scarlet's writing just doesn't come across as it being a, a normal way of Larry writing Scarlet. It's the the kind of the henpecking Scarlet that we saw some terrible. Of. Uh, in the in the uh, Josh Blaylock um, Devil's Due, she says um, she says a couple of times almost exactly the same dialogue. She says, uh, "This is you hear my dog." <laughs> Are you sure that's yeah. not uh, your no, wolf really. cubs in that's the cabin that you've timber. expanded in yeah. your backyard? Um, so uh, yeah, Scarlet Hempacking. This is our last mission, Snake Eyes. We're gonna retire to our cabin, add in, add in a few rooms, put in plumbing. We're gonna have a life. Uh, so yeah, so this is um, setting up breadcrumbs, I think, for the later Devil's Due stories, and sort of trying to have a bit of a dotted line as to why Snake Eyes freaked out and jilted Scarlet at the at the altar. I guess that you know that that dream of indoor pl- indoor plumbing was just too much for him. Yeah, it was because of Scarlet in this arc. He said, "I'm not living with that for the rest of my life. I'm done. I'm out of here." So um, Mark's quoting of that Hama interview and, and, and the context there was, was helpful and spot on. And I think it's worth sort of saying this sentence one more time explicitly. When Hama writes, he makes it up as he goes along. So he doesn't write page 17 until he's finished page 16. And I think generally, occasionally, yes, he knows sort of halfway through an issue how the issue ends, but he really is just making it up as he goes. And he's not like, concepting an issue and then going back to page one and filling it in. He's not concepting an arc going back to chapter one and filling it in one, two, three, four. And there's another challenge here. And that is that this both needs to pick up some threads that were severed prematurely with 155. Right. So, you know, in the final issue of GI Joe, I would forgotten this in the, I, I mean, I knew that in what 149 or 150 or 151, Billy, Storm Shadow, and the Baroness get zapped with a brainwave scanner. And then, but what I sort of, what I forget when I think about issue 155, Marvel's final issue, is that those three characters are not in that final issue. That plot thread that they're back to being A, Cobra, and B, zombies, that's just left dangling. And 155 ends with, you know, this amazing letter from Snake Eyes. So Hama has to do a bunch of things here. He, he needs to pick up some threads that were left dangling. He needs to um, reintroduce some good guys and some bad guys so they can have a conflict. Um, he needs to, I believe, at Devil's Do's urging, I don't, I don't know that Hama would have come up with the jugglers for the story by himself. He needs to introduce this sort of third element, which is sort of making the mission 
harder and more dramatic. Um, I suspect that the like the news the news reporter and the camera person and the father and son who are on this like boat um, from Vietnam. I think Hama came up with those characters and that idea on his own, right? I'm not sure who came up with the sort of 9-11 heroism reference. If Hama came up with it, uh, I think he like sort of turns it a little bit on its side in a very Larry Hama way. So in addition to being a story in and of itself, it has to look back to the end of the Marvel run. It also has to look ahead to the beginning of the Devil's Due run. And why I don't think it needed at all to look ahead to the beginning of the Devil's Due run is that in the timeline, this happens just after 155. So there's still, you know, there's a seven year gap. There's still like six and a half years for all this stuff to happen. And I don't need, uh, I don't need, you know, this like just a few months after issue 155, Scarlet and Snake Eyes to, for my benefit, start setting up some of the drama that we'll see in G.I. Joe Devil's Due issue number one and with tossing the wedding ring, which 23 or 24, whatever it was. Like, let's just pretend that the Marvel run had gone on another like 20 issues or 40 issues before it ended. That's still plenty of time in a five year gap before uh, all these changes would need to sort of start creeping in for the beginning of the Devil's Due run. And so I've always felt that this is Hama writing handcuffed. And it was such a strange experience to read the first issue uh, and the second issue when they came out. Is it issue one, which has, uh, because like the story works for like two pages and then something subtle happens and somewhere in the side of my brain, I just feel like my brain turning sideways. It's like, oh, okay. I don't, I don't know if that would, okay. And then I'm like back to enjoying it because it's not like, you know, suddenly for, halfway through the book it becomes black and white or it's a different artist or like the lettering is all like backwards and upside down it's still the same writer the same art all the way through but it's it's in the storytelling it's in the acting it's in the dialogue where something is buzzing in the back of my head that this it's it's familiar but it's not working and uh there are some places where i feel like dan jorgens is doing very good work. And then there are a couple panels where I don't know if he's sort of unfamiliar with, you know, these like very specific vehicles, or if he's at this point really used to drawing his own scripts, or if he's um, unfamiliar with cramming so much into one page, you know, specific costumes and specific vehicles. But uh, yeah, it's an issue one. About halfway through, uh, the two Ostrikers like pop off the train. And on the one hand, I think, oh, cool, two Ostrikers. And on the other hand, I feel like oh, they look kind of stiff, like they're just cut out photos, like floating there. And this is right after a scene where the train is headed to like an interchange or a crossroads. And I'll say this, I'll say this. Jurgens has some really great poses. Like there's two great poses, a storm shadow, like grabbing or slashing his sword. There's some good acting on like Mindbender and Destro and the Joes. Uh, Jurgens like tilts his characters. He like bends spines and draws ribcage torsos like toward us and away from us. At the same time, there are some panels which feel like he ran out of time or phoned it in. And again, it's like uh, uh, mixed in with this Hama not writing at his best. It's all disorienting. 
so yeah, where to go from there? So so one of the things you touched on, maybe we'll we'll cover now, was uh, that issue two ends with this very kind of on the nose tribute to the New York Fire Department, and my, my suspicion would be that this is coming from from uh, Hammer and. Uh, as a New Yorker, I know that it was, you know, something that that was, I guess, you know, around the world. It means meant, meant an awful lot to everybody, but specifically to him as a, a New Yorker, um, you know, a very uh, important and, and you know significant event that that um, profoundly touched him. He was he was basically across the street and saw it happen. Yeah. So, uh, and I don't know, Tim. You'd probably be able to correct me here. What else uh, was being published by? Uh, Larry at uh, you know in two thousand one two thousand and two, but um you know cert- certainly you know one of the earliest opportunities for him to put something in print, and certainly the very first one for him to put something in print in the world of GI Joe that kind of acknowledges you know those events and the heroism of the uh, the fire department. So so yeah, I think um you know he found a way to to include it. So th- it's this. Uh... It's this two-page scene, two-and-a-half-page scene where Joe and Jane show up and Joe says, why don't you get, uh, go interview some real heroes like those guys over there? And there's this big third-of-a-page vignette panel, a panel with no uh, border and no background. So there are these five firefighters are just standing full body in front of a you know white background and they're not saying anything and they're not doing anything. So it, it feels a little bit like a pinup, a little bit like a cover. Um, and so then the newscasters are interviewing them. And uh, as Mark says, it's on the nose. And where it sort of, where Hama turns it around for me is that then there's this sort of realistic, mm. pessimistic comments in the final two panels that it's actually not going to make the news because uh, you know, it, it's just firefighters. It's not, you know, it's not more dramatic or sexy or bloody, you know, news. But then the issue ends abruptly, right? The, the I feel like when I read most Hama G.I. Joe stories, whether it's the end of a story or a, certainly a self-contained story or sort of the middle of a bunch of stories, I feel like I sort of know when I'm on the final page. And for issues one, two, and three here, when I got to the final page, and then I saw an ad on the right side, and then I turned the page thinking there'd be a little bit more story, and there's just more ads, and I thought, oh, that was the end of the chapter. So these these three first chapters also end abruptly, which you know, which is fine. If you're going to read the graphic novel, and they'll put the four covers in the back, you read it through as one story, that's fine. But again, it's one more thing that makes this feel off. Mm. And maybe, and maybe a slight consequence of that that writing style that he's having to to follow that he knows that okay issue two is going to be uh the you know the transcarpathia uh, adventure you know issue number one is going to to you know end with effectively uh, destro getting away with the MacGuffin, and and then sort of just trying to kind of balance that in an in in that kind of artificial way and, and it not quite necessarily flowing in the way that you would then expect from a the normal feel, which is this nebulous thing that you can't quite put your finger on of, of how a G.I. Joe comic would expect to flow and end as a, as a, at the end of an issue. Jay, tell us something that's that worked for you here, since we're we're dancing on this theme of what's sort of not working. 
You know, honestly, I'm, I was looking through the book, trying to find just that something that, you know, that I wasn't just going to jump in here and be negative about there's, you know, it's familiar. Uh, it, it's nice to see. I think Larry's still got a, a feel for some of the, the characters where, you know, like I said, just do without snake eyes and scarlet. I'm not even going to talk about them anymore. They're just, they're, they're <laughs> dead to me as far as this goes. But, you know, uh, I'm looking at issue two right now. The Joe's come in contact with the other vet, which is a little heavy fisted, you know, uh, some of the dialogue. But that's kind of, you know, that's that's Larry. It's funny, you know, you get into the next part with with Destro and, and Zartan. Destro is just kind of talking down to Zartan and the Dreadnoughts again. And, you know, Zartan's pissed about that. And that's familiar and, you know, is, is good. There's little little bits dialogue that could just kind of stick out cobra commander we cut to cobra commander he's in a shooting gallery again but he's sitting in a chair i'm like man come on get up don't be lazy just at least stand up and shoot those bats do something but uh, i did like that uh, you know destro at one point was uh oh yeah here it is cobra commander says i'm not interested in hearing any reports until you have the one that says you know you have it and it's just like i don't even care just just do what you're supposed to do leave your whining and excuses to somebody else <laughs> Um, yeah, flip through here, more Scarlet stuff. The wolves hate that, hate all that. We got this one sleepy general. I don't know. I feel like this guy's been drugged. He looks like, I don't know what that girl gave him, but he's going to fall asleep there in that, in that Pentagon meeting. Storm Shadow and, and the Baroness and Billy come in and we get some classic, uh, Larry dialogue. Baroness says the androids are wearing the faces of prominent GI Joe team members. And Storm Shadow says how Mordantly amusing, yet intrinsically unsatisfying. Nobody is going to write that except for Larry. That's <laughs> that's dead on. That's that's perfect. Classic uh, Larry Hammer dialogue there. And then um, something about the next scene. Sorry, Jay. Like, I had um, I had that that bit of dialogue in there is one of my hammer times. One of your favorites. Well, actually, no, actually. Oh, my a hammerism. My hammerisms. Uh, yeah. Because I felt that that particular part of uh, the dialogue. Uh, the androids are wearing the faces of prominent G.I. Joe team members was uh, the hammerism being that um, Larry's deploying dialogue to make up for deficiencies in the art to try and explain it because oh, wow. the, the, the bats are wearing these masks. But um, apart from earlier on in the, in the story where there was a snake eyes one, it's not entirely clear what those masks are actually meant to yeah. de depict. They're fi fairly kind of generic kind of faces um, so it's less it's not particularly obvious who they're supposed to to be. So so it's a way of Larry pointing out those masks represent G.I. Joe faces. Yeah, they don't really look that that great like like bats or or what they're supposed to be disguised as. Um, then, you know, the scene with Destro and the and the, the other old uh, fisherman I thought was good. I mean, there's a lot of really great, you know, hammer hammer dialogue. It, it felt familiar in a lot of ways, um, you know, and it made me once again say uh man i i wish i was reviewing the uh, the a raw stuff with, with tim and mark because <laughs> especially now hammer seems to be a, on a roll in that book but a lot of the stuff in here like i said we're not going to get to and i think jade uh, sort of um the the point about the dialogue you know is true in the a raw is you know even in the in the the issues with that we enjoyed the least from from larry there was always the odd moment here or there particularly from the voice of Cobra Commander, where where there's a this you know a completely mm -hmm. you know zinging line where he's some withering letdown or use of just something some crazy, part. yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, people have talked in the past about just the the crazy words that that Cobra Commander uses. You figure Cobra Commander is probably 
got to be insane. And he's got like a like a book of the day, a book of five syllable words a day that he keeps in his bathroom or something. He just goes in there every morning and he thinks I'm going to work this into a conversation today, Um, (laughs) you know, even though it's just crazy stuff somehow. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot, a lot, a lot I like in here. Like I said, a lot of the dialogue is, is just, it's, it's nice to see Hammett go back to these characters. He does know a lot of them. And uh, Jurgen's art, I'm not a huge Jurgen's fan, um, but a lot of it's really good. I The only kind of big issue that I had was kind of in an overall thing, I guess, is we don't often see Duke and Hawk in the field together. Mm-hmm. So having them both there from a mission standpoint made it awkward, but then also kind of from the art. Not to mention the fact that Dan Jurgens draws Hawk like Steve Rogers when he <laughs> should be much older. I, you know, it just the whole Hawk Duke yeah, thing didn't partic- necessarily work. And the look of Hawk kind of had a had an issue with. I go I go back to the forehead thing, right? Like Duke Duke traditionally, I mean, Duke now is always young and has like short hair, but he's young. You know, traditionally, Duke in the toy and in the comics, he has a little bit of a receding hairline. Yeah. I don't know, he's 30. But Hawk is definitely mm-hmm. 45 or 50. And, you know, like artists should draw some lines under Hawk's eyes. And he shouldn't have, you know, the hair of a like... 20-year-old. You know, model, a model California surfer. If if you look at page 20 in... in uh, or not page 20, page 10 in number... Uh, number two, uh, where Duke and Hawk are on the boat. Uh, number one, right off the bat, of course, it's overcolored. But um, Hawk looks younger than Duke in like every panel. And especially the last panel, he's got this kind of, oh, I'm going out on my surfboard kind of look, you know. <laughs> and, and I'm like, Hawk is 50. This is also a place where we might put some of this at the feet of the inker. You know, if, if, if an inker is, I'm not trying to cast aspersions uh, on Bob Layton. I'm just no, you're speaking, right, though. I'm just speaking generally. Like, you know, inkers can make some corrections to the artwork uh, as they go, but also you have to give them the time and you have to give them the script. So if someone hands an inker a bunch of pencil pages and says, ink these, particularly if it's like, ink these quickly, we're behind schedule, you know, they're going to do a good job. If someone gives an inker the script and and sort of make some reminders like, oh, this this plane is actually quite shiny, uh, whereas this other plane is dull. Or, oh, this guy's 30, this guy's 50. And I can imagine uh, that, you know, the anchors of this arc were not given that extra information. But um, yeah, and maybe neither of these guys are familiar with the property. They don't yeah, know definitely, that Hawk is supposed to be they're definitely, know, twice Duke's they're age. They're definitely not familiar with this property. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's that's a minor nitpick. Like we said, I don't I don't want to get into, into that. Um, I liked how Hama took and I, I kind of touched on this in the in the beginning, how he he did use um, four issues to tell a story and give it space to breathe. Uh, it d- didn't feel nearly as rushed as some of the other ones that we, we've read. But just I don't know. There was a good kind of almost road trip quality to it. You know, the Joe start mm-hmm. in Utah. They go from Utah to Florida, and then we have an awkward transition where you find out they're in a train, and I didn't know they were in a train. So then they're they're on in Georgia, and then they're going up the coast, and you know, so there's this kind of uh, feeling that the the whole 
story is moving, you know, and, and, and Destro's following them. You got the Zar- Zartan, the Dreadnoughts in there. Um, yeah, I liked it. It just, I didn't like it as much as I could have or wanted to. Sounds like you like, sounds like you like the plot, not the script. Well, I don't know, but I did like some of the script. I mean, I liked most of the mm-hmm. script. Mark, were you about to jump in with there or something? I was, I was just going to say when we were talking about um, Hawk and Duke that, um, yeah, that the, particularly in that very, very first scene where um, we've got Duke and Hawk and also um, Snake Eyes and they're all in mufti, so they're in, in, their, clothes, in their own clothes and, and not in their uniforms, and two of them are wearing black T-shirts, it just seems to be unnecessarily confusing in, in terms of following their characters particularly to maybe people who aren't sort of completely all over the property and in, in the ways that, that the super fan fans are, but um, they, they could quite easily have been in, in their own, own clothes. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, snake eyes, you know, could have been a differentiated from uh, Hawk with a different colored t-shirt, for example. But uh, yeah. So I think that uh, Dan Jurgens, I think he's one of, I think he is an artist who has great instincts and if he's uh if he's not doing his best like conscientious job he'll still do a good job and with the the challenges of a gi joe story right lots of costumes keeping track of people weapons right they're also like animals to draw in this and uh, vehicles and maybe he maybe he was rushed i'm not sure but i feel like you know, half the panels, half the pages sort of really work. There's some like exciting things. And then there's some panels where I find the pose is a little stiff or like this thing that Mark just called out with, you know, Snake Eyes' shirt in black and also uh, Duke's, is it Duke? Hawk's shirt in black in the opening scene where, you know, sometimes Jurgens cuts a small corner, right? Like there's a thing you can do in comic art where if someone is wearing something black, you just like exit out and fill it in completely in black. You don't draw as if there's still going to be some clothing folds or some uh, muscles. And that's a really small thing. And it's like a good time-saving thing. And yet at the same time, we've got these three guys, they're all blonde. And I can also imagine looking at page three, I can imagine that Hama's plot for that first panel definitely calls out that uh, Snake Eyes is somehow sort of separated from the other three or looking away or like in shadow or mysterious, right? Like that's that little shadow on Snake Eyes' face there. That's not an accident. Um, and so, uh, you know, we see this with the modern issues. When you bring someone onto a brand like this that A, has hundreds of issues of history and B, has so much specific reference, I think you need like an editor sort of just to provide extra reference and extra offer some small suggestions and corrections, you know, it's like, Oh, well that, that guy needs to be in a different shirt because they're all going to be blonde or, you know, this guy actually is 50, uh, not 30. I do want to point out Jay referred to the train thing and I'm glad he said it that way. I can't tell if it's a storytelling reveal that the Joes in issue, is it one? The Joes in issue one are in a train i think it's hama doing a reveal where the joes are somewhere they're in some kind of like truck or warehouse or shipping container 
And then you turn the page and it turns out that they're on a train. And that's supposed to be like really exciting because it's this like, oh, we're under mm -hmm. attack. There's a there's a plane thing above us and we're moving. Um, yeah, and Tim, I, it is it. It is a reveal because I have the I have the script uh, because I've got the trade paperback of this and they include the the script the to issue one in the back and it says pull back to see that Scott Stalker and Gung Ho are standing inside what seems to be a metal cylinder of some sort could it be a submarine the curving walls are absolutely featureless except for riveted seams um, so so yeah it is Great. intended to be somewhat mysterious and then okay yeah so is a reveal as as they come outside so i i, I chalk this up uh i you know you know i think they're subtle thing even if hama's like getting a scene to work the way that he would have if he'd been able to write the way that he wanted i think there's still some subtle things that are like compressing or folding these scenes and how they breathe, what someone says, how they move. So I think some of this is Hama, and, and I can't quite tell. I think some of this is um, uh, Jurgens, where, you know, maybe maybe that ter page turn reveal with the plane firing down on the train, maybe we need to be further away and the plane needs to be sort of more dynamic. Like it's hovering, but it, it feels like perfectly still. Um, and then, you know, like the opposing page with these three Cobra soldiers um, repelling down on ropes, you know, th th their poses feel really, anyway, sorry. What I want to say is um, later in the issue or in the next issue, someone refers back to how this like train thing, the dreadnoughts didn't pull it off successfully. And someone says, oh, it was like a railroad crossing or a, a, an interchange. And I thought, oh, I couldn't tell. Like that page where the dreadnoughts, this is in issue one, Whereas Artan and the three dreadnoughts are actually standing on the tracks, like chopping it up. Like, it's not clear where they are. And uh, I know there's a little narration box that's a caption that says up ahead. I don't know if it's, it, maybe Mark can tell us. I don't know if it's in the plot or if Jurgen's just phoned in a little bit of this panel, but Ripper is just standing in the background, like not doing anything. And then there's this dialogue where Torch says, yeah, even if Ripper just laid back and let us do all the work. Right, it's like no. If you got three, you got three tough guys, and two of them are supposed to be chopping up the train tracks. I bet all three of them are supposed to be chopping up the train tracks. There's something else that happens on this page. Uh, I'm I'm not going to say anything else about else about the color, except that I love how all the characters look because the characters are all just two or three colors per you know object: hair, complexion, shirt, pants. There's something on this page which does not work in the coloring, and that is in the first panel, there's a big explosion. In the second panel, there's a big explosion. And then in the third and fourth panels, Hi-Fi is treating the setting sun in the background the exact same as the explosion. And so, and that is actually making the storytelling confusing because I'm sort of thinking like, oh, is that, did the plane crash kind of behind the dreadnoughts or like, mm -hmm. Is the thing behind Zartan in the final panel, like, yes, that's the sun, there's lens flare, but, like, is that the train behind him and the light, you know, it's, like, sneaking up on him? Is that Torch's uh, torch? Once again, hi-fi, less is more. And then one last thing, <laughs> uh, and this, this is a lettering mistake and an editorial mistake for not fixing it. Um, in this panel, this is in issue one again, where Zartan and the Dreadnoughts are on the train tracks and they're chopping it up, but, like, Jurgens just chose the wrong camera angle, so it's not quite clear sort of where they are and what's happening. But there are two signs behind them with text on them, and then you turn the page, and 
the Joes are on the train and there's a sign behind them. And it's, it's mm. supposed to be that exact, like the train is caught up with this bridge or interchange or track crossing that the, so that's the storytelling device uh, sort of so the 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 like bridge thing and the billboard are supposed to cement us in the previous page to yeah. the next page it's like okay the joes on the train have caught up with where the dreadnoughts were a moment ago but there's no text on the billboard <laughs> so it just looks like either a different billboard so i'm like oh is the train much further away or did it pass where the dreadnoughts were chopping up the train and it's not really clear from Jurgens' art, the Dreadnoughts are chopping up the train. And then in this next page, where the two Awestrikers jump off the train, um, the top two panels where the train is going to derail, like Jurgens is almost avoiding showing this clearly that like there's track and then there's damaged track, or there's track and then there's no track, and there's a train and it's on the track and it's heading towards the danger zone, and then it actually starts to like crash or fall or just derail. And then this panel with these two Ostrikers uh, popping off with the six Joes, you know, like this, you know, Hama's asking a lot of this scene. And I have read a script where Hama has written like action happening next to a train. And I've seen artists pull this off. Um, and yet Jurgens chooses to make the Ostrikers so big here that we sort of don't see any of the train and we don't see any of the like train crashing. And then Hi-Fi decides that the smoke, that it's smoke behind uh, the Ostrikers, that the train is like disappearing into smoke or crashing into smoke. And I think that's accurate. But maybe this was the case where it was supposed to be an explosion and not like, you know, flat beige. And and then the fact that the Dreadnoughts disappear from the story. And this is where it feels like, and I'm, I'm, I'm shifting gears very slightly here. This is where it feels like, I kind of feel like Devil's Do said to Hama, hey, make sure you include these 30 characters. Yeah. And yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this story didn't need that. Yeah. This is the bit with the Dreadnoughts. Yeah. I have a real quick little comment about that page where uh, the dreadnoughts are tearing up the uh, the train tracks. Uh, first of all, I don't know how how effective a chainsaw is going to be against <laughs> a, a train track that uh, I've destroyed those on much lesser things. Um, but then secondly, what I wondered, I was going to ask Tim this here. Do you think that maybe Gene Colon was visiting uh, uh, Dan Jurgens's house and, and, and Dan said, hey, draw Zartan on here for me real quick. Zartan's looks to me like Zartan's like a like Zartan's shoulders are quite wide here. Yeah, well, just the the shadowing and everything, the the the, the brushwork. It looks like a colon to me. It doesn't look like Jurgens at all. There's there's a comparison that I want to make here in the storytelling. A thing that doesn't work and a thing that does. Um, in issue two, we see this. Uh, so the the boat is heading up the east coast, and we cut back to the jugglers, and then. Uh, Cobra Commander tells Destro to go to Broca Beach, which is like fun and exciting. Because if you've read G.I. Joe, you know what that means. And then there's this time jump, right? This is, uh, I'm holding the comic and I'm, I'm at the centerfold because so, I see the staples. So I know I'm halfway, I don't know what page number it is, but I know I'm halfway through. And um, it, uh, the caption box says two days later, and there's a news reporter reporting about some fight. And behind her, I know it's a crashed Cobra Mamba. And she is relating what just happened. And then you turn the page and then there's a flashback which shows the missing time that we jumped ahead in those two days. And 
Hama's really savvy with his sort of keeping track of time in his stories. And I don't know if this is like, again, he's like, oh, I'm running out of pages. I have to hit like the 22 page mark and I'm on page 17 or whatever. I don't know if he's like feeling experimental, you know, because this is the guy who did the silent issue and SFX and triptych and diptych um, and has done, you know, several more uh, silent issues. But this, every time I've read the story, right, 2002, a year ago, and uh, yesterday, this, this like two page, like unnecessary time jump backtrack, like jumps out to me. And then as a comparison, right, last night I'd read issues one and two and I'm taking notes and I'm like, ah, that sort of works, it sort of doesn't. And then I got to issue three and I took a deep breath and I thought, oh, here's another issue of this that's going to sort of work and sort of not. And issue three actually completely works for me. And halfway through, I thought, wait, was I like not paying attention in 2001 <laughs> and last year when I, we, when I read and reread this arcs? Issue three works completely right? Like there's, even with, even with lots of characters, you know, like the, Billy and Baroness and Storm Shadow feels a little redundant because they're not all three of them doing like distinctly different things in the story arc, but they work as a trio because they're all uh, zapped by the brainwave scanner. And like fans will want Hama to check us in on them. But this whole issue is at Destro's Silent Castle. And there's this really satisfying like double back over and over of like, Who's up there? We're down here. We're, we're on the road that approaches the Silent Castle. Where's Wild Bill? He's in trouble. He's back and he's done a like a, a, a clever Hama sleight of hand. It's like, Wild Bill, how did you fix the uh, tomahawk? It's like, uh, with a deus ex machina. That's not unbelievable. And I actually found issue three super fun and it, it felt like the recent issues that we've been reading in A Real American Hero that are um, special missions or untold tales. It felt like a really good single issue and it just motored along and it didn't have mm. um, any of these like um, non-player characters, like the vet fisherman guy and the like news reporter. And it brought in one more Joe to the story, Wild Bill, who maybe some fans want to check in on. And I got to the end of issue three and I thought, okay, so one and two don't quite work. Three really works. What's going to happen when I get to four? And four sort of splits the difference. The stuff that feels like Hama doing Hama works. And then at the end, when I can see Hama shoehorning in his story to like fit the Devil's Due upcoming stuff. So I want to say uh, issue two is weird. And issue two has that weird continuity glitch with the, uh, sorry, the, the metal insignia on the general's, on the juggler's hat. It like just is drawn wrong in one panel. So like issue two mm -hmm. doesn't work for me. Issue three totally works for me. I'm with you there. Issue three is great. It really was just from beginning to end, uh, just a ride. And and like you said, kind of what I echoed, uh, what I said earlier about going from Utah, you know, down to Florida, up through Georgia to you, you just feel the progression of, of how the, the story flows. And this one is, is just like that. And you're back and forth with all these different characters. It's really great. Um, there was, as we're flipping through it right now, there's one panel and this is probably going to sound silly, but to me, I'm, I'm looking at this and there's, there's a specific panel that just, like I said, I'm not a fan of, I mean, Jurgens is a good artist. I wouldn't say that I don't, I dislike his artwork. Really. The only thing that I've ever read that he's done was some Superman stuff. And I think he did a Superman aliens maybe that was inked by Kevin Nolan, which I love cause I love Kevin Nolan. Yes. But, um, page 15 
starts off with uh, Snake Eyes using the castle defenses against itself. The third panel is a worm's eye view. You've got Dr. Mindbender and you've got all these vipers running for you. There's four vipers in that panel. That's awesome. That's an awesome bit of storytelling uh, and camera placement right there. It's fantastic. Here, here. I think this is so, yeah. I think this is one of those cases where Jurgens either for his um, familiarity and comfort level or like the deadline, I think some of the pages and panels in this arc uh, look great and some of them are not successful or, or not clear. But yeah, you're right. This is this is a great page. And and this is very much this very much reminds me of how Hama approached issue twenty-one. Uh, of the original series in keeping track of where we are in and on the silent castle. The last panel of page 14, right? Snake Eyes is in the distance and he's on the other turret and he's, he's now aiming at us at these two vipers. And then you get this closure, right? First panel of page 15 that you referred to Snake Eyes is now blasting the other uh, two vipers on that far and that's awesome turret. It's just <laughs> and then s- similarly on the bottom panel of page 15 snake eyes is now turned and aimed his turret upward and he's now going to take out uh, another higher turret yeah right? yeah he's, ele- he's can... elevating to take us out traverse and engage and you can see the second turret in the first panel mark uh, we should we should hand the mic back to you because jay and i have been <laughs> going back and forth oh let me jump in real quick before we get back to mark there was another little bit of really nice uh, a visual cue that, that made me think of you, Tim, when I when I read it was in. Um, I'm not sure whether. Yeah, it's page 10 of issue one. The first panel has uh, the Cobra spy calling back in. And then the second panel is kind of a tall vertical panel with Dr. Mindbender. And he's just got the phone in his hand, but it's away from his face. And it's like, okay, that's a little cute to let us know that he, that was her just talking. And, you know, and it was just subtle, but it worked. And it made me think of things that we've talked about throughout how little, you know, just like that with the two turrets, having the second turret in the first panel. And then boom, at the last panel, he turns around and moves it. It's a nice little bit of uh, business continuity throughout the story. Uh, did you call that page 10? That's page nine. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> Mark, jump back in. Yeah, I've got some. Uh, I've got some uh, ice spies to, to to dig into. If uh, if you're ready for that, yeah, sure. I, I spy, spy with, with my, my little eye. eye. So we've got uh, I spy a funky looking cobra airship helicopter thing, um, which puts me in mind a little bit of some of those early GI Joe issues where the cat the cobras didn't necessarily have a, a large armory of pre designed. Um, toys that had come out and so the artists were just coming up with their their own thing and and this kind of helicopter feels like that kind of early 80s crazy boxy sci-fi kind of uh, design Um, and piloted by what looks like two aero vipers i believe who uh, were the condor pilots which appears later on but piloted by destro the story opens in january 1995 which is one month after the cover dated uh, December 1994 issue 155. So very much oh. actually continuing on the uh, the next month after issue 155. But I believe 155, I believe it was solicited in August. So I believe it actually came to stores in September, October. 
the cover date was you know an indicator of when it should be pulled from the shelves rather than necessarily when it was coming out but uh yeah for people for people looking back on always YouTube, confused it is uh, it is the uh, the date on the front i spy some medallions around the neck of the bats that are being shot at by cobra commander any speculation as to what the heck those are supposed to be that's a that's a good question because they're in i see a medallion in panel one two three four i don't see those medallions in the previous panel just confusing just to me i wasn't <laughs> it's got a significant it's got to be there for some reason it's got to signify something but i'm gonna I'd be darned if i know what it is maybe is it's the... got something to do with the mask like a second like a back of the mask or something maybe it's uh it's actually supposed to be a target a circular target could be could be, could be. okay next up i spy general thurston crowther corrupt juggler who hired major blood to stop snake eyes from rescuing george straw hacker uh, the american spy that was imprisoned in barovia back in the original run mm. um i spy cobra troopers who are say who say i am more than ready to kjb with an asterisk uh kick joe butt i just uh i just love the fact that they've introduced this kind of acronym and then explain it like it's just you know the jargon that uh you know is a, that the cobras uh use i i spy the the twin towers well absolutely because yeah. the story takes place before i mean whether whether or not this the story is going to slow down for a moment to nod to the heroes of 9-11 the story takes place before 9-11 and so there's a scene in manhattan and we can see the twin towers so yeah, back back yeah. to you mark yeah and specifically you know referenced in terms of uh you know going to going going all the way to the top carrying the equipment um by the the fire department uh next up for me is uh, cobra troopers being deployed from a helicopter to a train uh, which put me in mind of a possibly unfavorable ca comparison to to yearbook uh, two, given the the quality of uh, Golden's storytelling in that that sequence as uh, the uh, the Cobra troopers dismount onto the top of a moving train from uh, what do we call that helicopter now? Aspid. Uh, as a as a corollary to that, I I spy that a story has both Cobra soldiers and also Cobra vipers. Oh yes, as as if you know, I, I always as as kids, my brother and I sort of thought, well, the Cobra soldiers are still around, and they're more the first wave, and the Vipers mm. are a step up, or uh, they're going to keep all the soldiers around until they've made enough Viper uniforms, and then they retire all the Cobra <laughs> soldier blue uniforms. Yeah, tailoring logistics, or until the guys in the old costumes all get. KO'd. KO'd. <laughs> We've got uh, Snake Eyes uh, being called out as the master of the way of the inner anvil, that he can stop his heartbeat and assume the perfect semblance of death. And uh, flicking back to issue 10 of the original run, uh, you'll remember that, uh, that Snake Eyes was captured and put in the brainwave scanner by Dr. Venom. And as uh, on the screens, it referred to the fact that uh, yeah, I shall impart to you the most well-kept secret technique handed down from ninja to ninja through countless generations, the way of the an inner anvil, whereby you may still your breath and heartbeat to the semblance of death itself. So, uh, yeah, a call back, uh, all the way back to uh, 
to to that the name of uh, that ninja technique i spy this is not quite an i spy but uh joe and jane are in this story uh along with their weird top secret lab at the top of the empire state building with the space Mm -hmm. laser which we saw in help me out issue 86 and then also uh, 127 I'll take your word for it. I'm not. I'm my my memory for numbers is not as quick as yours. Uh, that's why I always preface it with the word around or the word maybe. <laughs> Joe and Jane looking nothing like to me more and Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. Um, that out there. So uh, uh, j- jumping away from uh, I Spy for a moment, Mark referred to this medallion on the bats on page four of issue two and i want to point out something that i really like on the next page so this is the top panel of page five of issue two so in previous episodes i have spoken a lot about how i think water should be colored in comics and also sometimes the sky and what happens a lot of times in modern comics is the artist leaves it blank And then the color artist either drops in a photo of water or the sky, which I think is really lazy and distracting because that's, it's, it's, this isn't a collage, right? Uh, Or they like sort of paint or sort of trace paint, like a photo of water or sky. And I think it's better, but often done poorly. And I'd rather they just fill it in with light blue or whatever. Um, So if anyone needs a visual reminder of, how you actually draw water when there's a boat or a G.I. Joe aircraft carrier in the water so that the colorist doesn't have this giant field of white to like contend with. Like, oh, I have to go to Google Earth and find some high-res photo of like waves, which like is not what it would look like. Look at this panel of this Vietnam-era boat off the coast of South Carolina, flying a little American flag. We can see Scarlet and Snake Eyes in the front. Look what Dan Jurgens and... Bob Layton have done. They have inked the water so that it looks like water. There's water with little waves, there's a wake. And then in the next panel and two panels after that, there's a little bit of inking which shows clouds. So artists, unless you're working with like the best colorists, and there are only a few of those, please, please, like draw the trees. Don't let don't have your colorists just like drop in some weird photo of like green tree texture. It looks bad. <laughs> I like that Jurgens took the water clear down to the bottom of the page too. Yeah, so pa- pan- panel panel one is yeah. is really sort of like the whole page. Yeah, and it makes everything else kind of an insight. Yeah, the next yes. Just a nice framing thing. I spy in the back of issue three, there is a preview for a Microdots comic published at the same time by Devil's Due, drawn by, uh, penciled by Steve Kurth, and he's gotten a lot better than when he drew uh, G.I. Joe comics, you know, six months or a year earlier uh, for Devil's Due. So it's not a G.I. Joe uh, I spy, and and, uh, for Mark and those of you reading the graphic novel, uh, it's not an I spy. Um, Mark, Mark, do you want to tell us about the cover of the soft cover collection? What, yeah, is, what is the, it and how do you feel about it? The, the, the cover is weird really, isn't it? It's, how does that um, make you feel? The, the top half is repurposing of an interior shot. It's, um, the two ore strikers coming down to that, um, Vietnam era boat, um, with snake eyes 
sort of you know over over the shoulder of snake eyes it's the and... it's the splash it's page one of issue two Thank you. oh my gosh and then and then the sort of the sec the bottom third of the book is uh it's sort of solo boxes featuring Mindbender, cobra commander storm shadow and uh shouty face destro and yeah it, it's a it's a weird cover um i don't know why they went for this rather than say just using issue one to be honest given you know given the the caliber of the art that they they already had there why you know why not use it weird ordinarily uh ordinarily i would guess uh it's because uh if you reuse artwork uh from a cover you're gonna have to pay that artist again but i think we've sort of established that you know, post-Marvel, publishers of G.I. Joe comics don't pay royalties or residuals when the issues get reprinted, right? You get a page rate to write or draw the issue. And then, you know, if an old issue gets reprinted and it's got your work or an issue from last month gets reprinted in a book, you don't get paid again, whereas, you know, at DC and Marvel you do. So ordinarily I'd think, oh, well, if they just reuse some art by Jurgens, they either don't have to pay for that or they don't have to pay as much but I don't think that um, Dave Dorman was going to get a like a reprint fee if they reused. I could be wrong. We one more question. I wish I'd asked Blaylock. And and strangely enough, I mean, at this era, Devils G were typically commissioning new cover art for their trades uh, rather than reusing mm. um, cover That's art. Right. So it's, so so I, d I don't know that it was necessarily likely to be money saving. It might. It might have been more of the perspective that, that they want to do something new and unique to differentiate the tech trade paperback cover from yeah. other covers. This this is a good um, guess that we want people to know that this is the old school Joe. Yeah. So so I think I think it was a, a probably a, yeah a, sh a shorthand for creating a brand new cover and kind of spotlighting what the interiors might be like. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. Um, I, I don't know if this is an error detective or as Mark might call it a nitpick, but in issue three, Destro was flying the condor and it, it gets hit with a missile mm -hmm. and he doesn't separate it. The condor can split oh. in the condor can split oh. into two uh, planes and I mean maybe the story would be the same in either case. He's gonna radio Cobra Commander and say, Where should I put this down? But this is also the Larry Hama who previously has written the Rattlers, which as toys and in the cartoon have folding wings and are VTOL. Uh, has he, he, several times he has not treated the Rattlers as VTOL, right? So mm -hmm. maybe Hama is either like, maybe he's deciding some of the like more fantastic elements of the toys he's going to leave out, or maybe there's a million things to juggle. And like Hama just didn't remember that the condor can split into mm -hmm. two planes. Mm -hmm. Probably. Probably. Can I just say how nice it is to see that plane? Yeah. I mean, that was not one that I had because I, I, I pretty much had quit by that time. But I feel like in a story where we've got Destro, Cobra Commander, Billy, Dukes, you know, Zartan, Hawk, Scarlet, Snake Eyes, all the top guys, the A-level, most recognizable things, that we've got a Condor instead of a Rattler. It's just neat that, to see a different kind of vehicle in there for a change. Mm -hmm. yeah and they they also stick in a, a trouble bubble slightly later on which is oh not that, a vehicle yeah. that, that um hammer used very much uh in the original 
run. This is a this is a good reminder. I wanted to get your guys' take on this. Um, I love this scene where the Joes jump onto the Cobra flight pod, the trouble bubble, from the top of the silent castle to sort of get it's too heavy to get down. Like that that page is is great. It's funny. It's also clever, right? It's like Hama dealing with the reality of like I'm up here, you're down there. How do we move from A to B? But in the previous um, uh, two pages, that shaped charge gets glued to the top of Mindbender's Rattler. But sorry, his flight pod blows up and throws him out of it. And I hmm. think Jurgens and Hi-Fi are trying to sort of parse that only the top half, the glass part, yeah. explodes mm-hmm. and the bottom half is fine. But like, that's a big explosion. And then, mm. so on the next page, when Duke is looking down and he jumps onto this trouble bubble that's kind of smoking, I thought that was a second trouble bubble. And then I thought, where did that come from? Because clearly, I thought, Mindbender's entire trouble bubble blew up and crashed. So I, th- I think this is Jurgens being a little careless in his visual storytelling, because in that previous page, we're looking past Cobra Commander's shoulder, and he's saying, what now? Somebody go pick up the good doctor and bandage him up. And as the... It, uh, the glass of the trouble bubble explodes again it's not the bottom half of the, of the flight pod that explodes so i found that storytelling a little confusing also not the sound effect that i would use for half yeah for half of a cobra flight pod um, blowing <laughs> up because that sound effect actually is what i would use for a burning cobra flight pod landing crashing or you know a gunshot yes that's it i thought the whole i thought the whole uh shaped charge thing was kind of unclear the artwork with that whole sequence was just a little sloppy uh, well i think hi-fi hi-fi kept co- yeah their coloring didn't help yeah hi-fi kept coloring what i think is the three tips that have epoxy as they were like as if they were like a blowtorch or like yeah. an acetylene torch so it, like, it's glowing orange it's like is that what that actually looks like so it, mm. it like is that a fuse like a stick of dynamite um, one of my one of my nitpicks was going to be actually that scene you were talking about earlier about the 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 condor being hit by the death ray, um, which is that um, the uh, the death ray is sort of been established as functioning death on the ray. basis of coded GPS coordinates. Um, so so how on earth does it um, hit uh, a condor uh, that is you know would be moving in in flight? Rather than stationary in one specific GPS coordinate, uh, you know, set of coordinates. Very good, Bruce Willis, baby. I've Bruce also, um, <laughs> I, I've also, uh, you know, Hama, <laughs> Hama uses material in this comic, in in this in these comics that is futuristic but quite realistic. That seems fantastic, but you know, ten years later is real, and. I, I believe that we, you know, have or will soon have space lasers like this. But I have felt the two or three times that Joe and Jane have shown yeah. up in their secret lab at the top of the Empire State Building and then used this space laser. I feel like it, it's it's happened one time too many and that it happens two or three times in this story is then sort of the double whammy. You know, it's like I like Destro. I like the moment when they hit the condor and Destro's like, where did that come from? Mm. It made me think of Return of the Jedi when Admiral Akbar's like, where did that laser come from? He's like, that came from the Death Star. But I guess they they guess they have to establish it as being used 
uh, at least once before then it becomes the before the, the finale the finale so that it's established as you know what it, how it works what it does yes but I, I i find it's a little it's a little bit much for for this world of gi joe you know where like a lot of problems get solved with artillery you know we're like oh yeah. we've got we've got uh, the general or uh, the yeah. Rolling Thunder, two miles back. It's like, can we get a shell to blow up this plane? It's like, well, we've got a space laser. We've got a space laser. But you know, like again, I, I should, I can't, I, I can't stand on two feet and say this because at the same time, it's like, well, of course, Snake Eyes can stop his heartbeat. <laughs> He's a ninja, and that goes back to issue ten, right? Yeah. Okay, on to on to more nitpicks from from me. Okay, here comes the nitpick, uh, funky bunch. So um, how does Scarlet simultaneously shoot three Cobra Troopers who are spread out with three arrows from a bolt action crossbow whilst, let's, let's add um, for more incredulously, uh, simultaneously emerging from the uh, train tanker? I don't know what you're talking about. Scarlet's not in this book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have a. She's that good. She, okay, she's that good. Yeah. End of. Next up, we have uh, we we have uh, Hawk give delivering a, a you know very typically hammer line from him. Uh, we don't get par- parades and we don't get medals and we don't get a handshake from the POTS on the White House lawn. What we get is the satisfaction from doing our job, and that piece of dialogue is meant to explain um, why they should be doing. Uh, following well why should they be should be contacting the jugglers when they believe that they're being double crossed and set up and probably by delivering those coordinates to the, to them likely to have cobra then on their their ass trying to kill them um you know job satisfaction but how much job satisfaction do you get from delivering information to traitorous people who are trying to stab you in your back and have you uh, killed, uh, yeah, from being slipped yeah, from the short end, as they call it. Hawk seems to be really uh, more a company man, to use a phrase, in, in this than I think that he was before. He, he's just like, we'll do what they tell us to. Okay. Yeah. Well, didn't we just read one where Hawk was like, no, we're not going to take that kid to be killed. That's right. I mean, he's clearly does what he thinks is best, not what, what the jugglers tell him to do. So I think that was a little out of character. And it happened throughout. Next up, final final nitpick, um, and this is this is one that I saw a, a couple of um, reviews of these issues singled out as their the thing that that they disliked the most was Hawk's nearly inhuman recovery from his wound. So he gets a, a nasty wound to his chest, not a sucking chest wound, but uh, nasty none, nonetheless, which uh, Gung Ho is able to patch up, and then they get to to New York, but then. Instantly, instead of stay, staying behind in New York and getting uh, attention, he uh, Charlie Mikes and continues on to uh, the the next part of the mission, the uh, the Silent Castle. You'd have you'd have thought he might have uh, yeah, kind of timed out at that point and uh, let the the other guys continue on with the with the mission. Is there a um, is there an error detected? I remember an issue in the Marvel run. When someone wrote in a letter, Gung Ho showed up and hadn't been in the comic for a while. And then I feel like someone wrote in and said, hey, Gung Ho's accent is gone, but it was definitely here in issue 11 when he first showed up. What mm-hmm. gives? And I think 
I don't know if like Bobby Chase was answering the letters or Hama was, but I think the or the explanation, or maybe someone tried it for a no prize. I think the explanation was, well, you sort of take on the uh, the accent of the people you're around, or if you move, you lose your accent. So I wanted <laughs> to ask the two of you, since I'm only half remembering this, did you did uh, Gung Ho's accent in issue one jump out at you as either a little continuity flub or like good authentic Gung Ho? Do you have a stake in this? I'd say it's it's the stereotypical gumbo, Bayou, gung ho. Yeah, yeah. I didn't didn't strike me as out of character or odd at all. Okay, but not not um like overdone. I, I think what I'm asking is not is it overdone, but do you? I think what I'm asking is, do you remember a time in the Marvel run when gung ho lost his accent, and therefore oh. is this a proper correction, or do you feel like if he lost it and they explained it with sort of a no prize? Should he continue to not have it? And therefore, this is an error. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I'm sure that over the course of the series, he probably did kind of lose it. Uh, you know, most of those characters, especially one like Gung Ho, if they come from a particular region, the first three or four appearances, they're going to be really heavy on those kind of character traits. So I'm sure that the last or the first few appearances were kind of thick on that you know yeah by you dialogue and then probably as the series went on it kind of leveled out a little bit i don't remember it doing that that's just me assuming but i, I know that it was kind of thick in the beginning and the but beyond his first few appearances as well i guess his appearance was probably did taper out a little bit he was probably did given yeah, a little just bit a supporting character at that a bit point. a little bit less dialogue and yeah i guess you know i, th- I think it's forgivable to let something like that that slip a bit my i had a a, a very oh very nitpicky error detected um which was just that scarlet at one point in i think it's issue four uh is missing her roll neck and uh, so it's just sort of either drawn or, or colored with some uh some sort of rather swooping cleavage arama yeah devils do scarlet but uh gi jay didn't notice that one because uh because scarlet's not in this arc as we yeah who established. who are you talking about <laughs> should we do favorite line of dialogue yeah Quote of the week, 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 quote of the week. Let me go first, because I've actually got three, and if you what? guys don't use all three of them, then I'm going <laughs> to jump in later. But my my probably my favorite one was in, um, but the, it's it's in the battle in the castle, and um, Destro is in the higher levels of the castle, and he's coming down with a viper, and the viper complains about having to walk down 20 flights of stairs, and Destro says it's all going down weakly. <laughs> I just it was so funny that, that that was in there. You know, you had a viper going oh, 20 flights. And I'm like, who throws this dialogue in here? But that's, you know, again, was 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 uh, kind of a hammerism, maybe. And, and then just yeah, then Destro says that, to himself like later on um, that, that he wishes he had installed an elevator. Yeah, some kind of that, elevator or something. That's uh <laughs> That's my favorite line. Someday I should have elevators installed. As he's, it's a full body. It's a small panel, but it's a full body shot of him running up the stairs. And I like yeah. that because it caps the mm-hmm. joke from the previous issue where Destro is nagging some Cobra soldiers or Vipers. And that's a thing that that's a th- like I feel like we expect um, GI Joe to do more often in the comics and in the cartoon where. 
the troopers are like lazy or incompetent or the uh, superiors give them a hard time. And it actually very rarely happens. So it really sticks out when Destro gives this Viper a hard time. But the reason, not just because it's funny when Destro says, someday I should have elevators installed. The reason why I like it is, is twofold. One, once again, Hama is dealing with the physicality of a character or characters or equipment moving from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And you know, all of issue three is like up, down, up, down on yeah. the Silent Castle. And then four has to sort of wrap that up. And then uh, B, this panel very lightly echoes a panel from issue 21, yep. where Destro was leading a bunch of Cobra soldiers mm -hmm. up the stairs of the Silent Castle to get uh, 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 Snake Eyes. And that this is the kind of sort of subtle reference. And I don't even mm -hmm. think it's a reference. I think... Hama's just returning to a location that he established previously and characters are moving about it. But I see it mm -hmm. as like, not a cute nod, but just like a reference to Silent Interlude. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, yeah, I noticed that panel. Um, and I, have, it, I have another... It really echoes the one from 21. Uh, I'm going to jump in before Mark. I have another yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> silver medal uh, favorite line. Uh, one, two, three, four panels after my favorite line. Destro says... He's running toward us. I hope we have the right plugs. Because, so mm -hmm. this is, this is this, no, seriously, this is the second time. First with the, um, the like witness to the firefight and then the newscaster yeah. and the camera operator. Yeah. This is the second time that Hama has <laughs> taken a couple lines of dialogue out so that a character can refer to plugs and adapters, like plugging an XLR or a mini or a phono <laughs> uh, or a BNC or an RCA, like, Plug, you know, your headphones are a mini uh, plug, uh, the big ones that go into the side of a guitar, that's a phono jack. And this is what, you know, like, remember the silly bit at the end of the movie Independence Day when... The virus. The virus. And, like, of course, these this alien spaceship will somehow talk to my, like, Apple yeah. laptop <laughs> so I can upload a virus. It's like, no, that's silly. We're all just going to take it on faith. And Hama takes yeah. a moment... And like, it does work out. It's not a plot point. Destro's like, I have to run back down all these stairs and get like, you know, a, a male to female because I had a, a female to female and it won't plug in, right? That's um, so funny. But um, that, uh, that once again, Hama is thinking about the like physicality of equipment and gear and adding just a small layer of, of realism and like frustration uh, and anticipation to the story, right? It's like, that's that's writing. I, I keep saying this, like you're not going to see this in an issue of Punisher War Journal or, un right. or Uncanny X-Men. You're not going to see this in an issue of Punisher War Journal or Uncanny X-Men. At the same time, I also feel like there are fans out there who would see this line as some weird, unnecessary distraction. Like, no, 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 get to the cool stuff. Get to the cool stuff. And this is kind of some of yeah. the cool stuff. Yeah. All right, uh, Mark, I think we've grabbed the mic from you for a bit. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, I had Doctor Mindbender talking about the dead snake eyes, and he just says, "Do you want him stuffed and mounted like we did with before being cut off?" <laughs> it's just like just a and the Cobra lovely little, says, "No, just incinerate it." Yeah, is that lovely little kind of insight into the workings of uh, Doctor Mindbender's mind? Now that's now that's not some kind of reference that we should read into, right? Yeah, I, I can't think what it would be re referring to in terms of like a continuity. It's just like sort of, you know, there's there's something something that's happened in the past where they've... Where My they've first thought was Serpentor, uh, which I know probably can't be right. Well, well obviously it's... Well, Serpentor was on ice for 
40 issues so maybe well and there was that line when doctor when the goons were like uh they're like oh we replaced the body or something i don't know yeah Um, yeah, it it could have been something with that or it could just be somebody else had stuffed it could be Mm -hmm. a han solo to cobra commander's job of the hut mark do you have another somebody else that wronged him mark do you have another favorite line that was it for me. Okay, because there's, there's, there's another there's another one that I'm going to talk to um, in a minute about in the Larry Hammer co- colloquialisms. But um. Um, I wanted to I wanted to go back a half step. I, I I think this is an error detected, but I wanted to get your read on it, Mark and Jay. So this is in that final issue, and um, this is uh, it's page uh, one, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. It's uh, the bottom two panels are Destro sort of jumping for that control device. And then he has grabbed the control device. And the middle panel is is Gung Ho uh, firing his big machine gun. I'll just walk the tracers right over it. Rat-a-tat-a-tat. Destro lunges and says, we've experienced too much. Uh, We've expended too much at acquiring this piece of technology for it all to go to waste. And it looks like two of the shots from gung-ho's machine gun are hitting destro in the in the uh in the shoulder and on his uh tricep Hmm. but we yeah but destro i i feel like that suit is kind of like the michael keaton batman okay okay so it's it's kind of armored i didn't think of i mean i saw it hit it and i was like damn Destro's got some badass armor. Okay, I mean, by by this point, uh, Destro, you know, De- Mars made Cobra Commander's battle armor, which costs as much as a jet, and like can take bullets, <laughs> bullets and grenades. So, yeah, it, certainly embedded in this is that Destro is going to wear something safe. But I did feel yeah. like I did feel like in this moment that maybe a homism would be like Destro explaining to us the reader. It's like with my triple layer Kevlar, right. You know, that I yeah, created yeah. from Mars industries. <laughs> when Mars has an asterisk when you're like, Oh yeah, cool gear gear. Um, but it did feel a little, a little bit, mu- you know, it's not like a small pistol. Like it's a two handed machine gun anyway. Okay. So if you guys, yeah. if you guys are cool with it, I'm cool with it. I wonder if that's something that the Jurgens put in or whether that was part of the plot. Destro's got a full-on um, neck collar sort of stud, you know, with massive, great big spikes coming out of it as well. That's yeah, that's in many not part of the, the, the V two, is it? Um, it, well, it's on no. it's it's on the cover of issue. It's on the cover of issue two, where Dave Dorman has painted. Uh, so what Destro's what Destro's helmet needs? Either the helmet has to stop under his jaw, mm-hmm. like the Camille like the like the chameleon in in spider-man comics or destro needs to have a collar so that the metal part can stop and like there can be black or flesh below it and in several panels in this story jurgens doesn't draw a collar and so hi-fi colors the gold like all the way down his neck which looks a little weird so even though those are spikes i appreciate that destro from a design standpoint has a collar. I don't appreciate the continuity glitch that he only has the collar for some panels. Yeah. Um, I was going to say Dave Dorman does draws the, like the collar, but but they're sort of like the small studs rather than giant spikes that, that yes. Jurgens adds for yes. whatever reason. Oh, Jay, did you have more favorite lines of dialogue? I did a couple. Um, I think it was it was again it was either panel or uh, page three, issue three or four. Number three, page 14, panels one and two. Uh, there's two Vipers, and the vent pops open, and one of them says, mm-hmm. vent cover popped. 
cheapoid Arbco Industries junk never fit right to begin with. Well, that was kind of funny that you got, mm. you know, Cobras complaining about stuff that their own company's <laughs> making. And maybe they don't even know that that's like their own guys. Like, they're just like, why do we get all our stuff from Acme, you know? Um, but also blaming then, their equipment rather than yeah, you know, rather than thinking it might be snake eyes. You know, they are under attack. Junk. It's not, <laughs> it's not, you know, an event popping like that isn't normal, is it? But yeah. Uh, I don't anyway. know. That's some cheap stuff. It if if it is, yeah. And then um, page seventeen, where Snake Eyes is is getting, uh, he's attacking a bunch of cobras, and I think it's Billy that says, "Get him in a crossfire," and the Baroness says, "Get him in any kind of fire." <laughs> Classic. Okay, with that with that great line of dialogue from Hammer, let's uh, go Hammer Troparama in uh, Hammer Time. Time to beat the soles of your boots with my face. Sucking chest wounds, red ninjas, brain scanners, rubber hooses, blue ninjas. And some more sucking chest wounds. Hammer time. Uh, there's, I think, two cases of uh, uh, traversing, uh, the, the angle of traversing some weapons, mm. you know, up and down the silent castle, like, oh, I can reach them and shoot them by pointing these guns up, or we can't reach them because they're too close to the down and our, our weapons yeah. don't go all the way down. We had, uh, yeah, I spotted the gun barrels at the silent castle that can't depress uh, low enough to engage the threats. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. In issue number one, uh, this is in the, in the script, um, the Joes are driving American-made autos. In the in the plot, Larry Hammer specifically says the Joes are standing by an SUV, a Blazer, a Cherokee, or an Explorer. Joes by American. <laughs> uh, is <laughs> it funny. is it just the script to issue one that's in the collection? Uh, it's it's only like the first like seven pages or so from issue one that's, uh, okay. that's in the back. Yeah. Does page three at the top of it say uh, some kind of note that like Larry write this terrible dialogue for Scarlet and <laughs> Snake Eyes? Because issue page three, issue one is where the whole thing goes off the rails. They're in the car and they start talking and Scar or Stalker says, I'm not getting between this. I'm like, what am I reading? What is this? <sighs> Sorry, last vent. Uh, okay. Mark, more. Uh, I've got a I've got a bit of a homism. So. Um, on the second page of issue two, the Joes and the two Ostrikers have pulled up to this this boat, this uh, skiff, and uh, we have seen in, and maybe it's actually more after this story, but we have seen stories where a Joe recognizes, someone in a Joe story, either an NPC recognizes a Joe as some kind of military or veteran or expert, or a non-player character recognizes Joe as some kind of military mm -hmm. veteran or expert, and there is an instant kinship, and the person helps the Joe, or the Joe helps the person. Yes, yes, indeed. The last that there is, there are so many. So I think this could this section could could go on for a long time. But um, calling out one more specifically that the the whole thing was in the end a scam from the the jugglers. And the only way for the Cobras to believe uh, in the MacGuffin for the plot was for the G.I. Joes to go all out. And I'm thinking of uh, specifically uh, Special Missions number eight, where the CIA agent Anderson had set up the mission to fail from the beginning uh, and uh, the, the Joes uh, foiled his uh, 
plot by actually being too good in that particular one. But uh, in in this case, it, it seems that uh, that Destro's last minute shenanigans of moving the desk did thwart uh, the Joe's effectiveness and uh, did allow the uh, the virus to be uploaded into their systems in the end. I wish that the plot or script to issue two was somehow available because this uh, lone man fishing with a baseball cap on the pier when uh, Destro lands the condor. Mm-hmm. Actually, is the condor a VTOL? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it is here in this scene, but like, do we remember is the toy? Anyway, anyway. Destro walks up to this, uh, this old guy in a baseball cap and a jacket and he, uh, he holds up a photo of a, an all-striker and he says, what did you see? And Dan Jurgens is drawing this character who we see in close-up and in a medium shot as some kind of very specific person. He has a specific, he has big ears, he has a big nose, um, he's got, you know, old man eyes. And Hama will often, in his plot, refer to a character as if it's an actor or a person in comics. I don't know if he does this often, but I've seen this in at least one Hama plot. And I wonder if Hama called out in his plot that this should be like a particular person and Jurgens sort of tried to draw that person or if he just described him you know it's like oh it's an old guy he's got big ears and then uh, (laughs) Jurgens obliged him because I do think Hama wouldn't have left it neutral such that Jurgens would have made up this wonderful character on his own but all of all of that said about your you're liking this scene Tim you know, Destro's in this condor and it's, you know, coming down to land and this guy's, you know, noticing he's, Destro comes up in his, in his weird outfit and his big spiked collar, um, you know, tracking down these uh, military t- types that, that the, the other, the boatsman, that, you know, conceivably this guy's friend and he's obviously, you know, trying to track them down and not up to no good. But um, yeah, he, he throws them properly under the bus <laughs> saying right right where you know what they're in and where they are uh, headed off <laughs> are you gonna argue with somebody dressed like that i'm not Esther comes walking up to me i give him my wallet and say turn around yeah part of why i wonder if hama sort of cast this character as a particular actor is i can imagine you know if it's some like character actor from the 50s or the 70s who might play a character who would like like, I, I didn't see nothing, crazy man with a metal mask. Or, you know, sure thing, they went that way. I, I can see there being an added sort of joke, like, oh, I know who that sort of character is from that old movie. Um, it's also just fun if it's if it's sort of any kind of specific person, because uh, Jurgens draws, you know, like a certain kind of standard face for his men, and to draw like a very particular old man, fisherman by himself on the pier is great. I had some colloquialisms. There used to be a pudding that was over-egged. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. At first it was British, but then it was Commonwealth. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. But now there's a new player in town. A comic book writer of of some renown he's using real world examples and peppering the issues with with lots of samples 
It's a Larry Hammer colloquialism. He's talking G.I. Joe and all its heroism. Can you guess what it is? Is it something new now? Listen as Larry drops a slice of real life on you. Uh, I have three, actually. So first up, some some you know nice words and terms of frame phrases being used, used here. Uh, myopic. So this is Cobra Commander. Destro is useless. He is mooning over that myopic cow, trying to wean her off the brainwave scanner. Um, so myopic, of course, short-sighted, but uh, such a lovely sounding word. Much better uh, than, than purely just saying uh, short-sighted or you know, square-eyed or whatever else. Four-eyed? Four-eyed. Jeez, Cobra Commander. Making fun <laughs> of her. Then I had uh, goat rope, which was used a couple of I saw times. that. Have you come across this before? I haven't seen it, but but I never have. But Wild Bill is flying the tomahawk and he's in trouble. Yeah, it's so it's slang for a real mess, and and it sounds like it's also particularly uh, military slang as well. Um, a, a situation out of control, and uh, possibly derived uh, from a couple of places, but uh, a rodeo event in which competitors attempt to lasso a goat usually for younger participants. So a bit of a chaotic uh, mess there. Hmm. Um, we had uh, another one from uh, Wild Bill, Dry Gulch. He said, Dagnabbit, Wild Bill, you darn got yourself dry gulched by a cobra mamba. And my mind, you know, automatically went to it, you know, meaning uh, something slight, slightly uh, ruder than possibly the actual meaning there sort of thinking humped uh, you know if that uh is that 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 scans it, it to to the um american vernacular but um so so it, but it's not it's it's not sexual it's uh to ambush with the intent of killing or severely mauling and the etymology is from the american west where outlaws uh, often kill people as they pass through a dry gulch or uh, where uh, cattle rustlers drove stolen animals off the edge of such a gulch. Geographical term, gulch. Interesting. Okay, did we have anything else before we uh, yo-jo this bad boy? I've got one last comment, and I also have my like wrap-up thoughts. My one last comment is, um, do you guys notice that Stalker's uniform, his costume in this arc, is... It's a it's a variation of his uh, version one outfit. He's mm. wearing he's got a you know a, a pullover sweater or a, a a button up. I guess it's not button up. He has a collar and then under it is sort of yeah. like a a turtleneck with a collar. And I like it. I see. I like it yeah. because it's a it's it's what I think you should do if you know it's sort of between the continuities or uh, a sort of an un, an untold story, like uh, given their costume, but change a couple things. Uh, at the same time, it's all only green. And I sure wish that either the shirt under his shirt or the collar under his collar was a different color. I want just a little accent. Cause you know, it's like the only character that gets a costume that's all one color is Snake Eyes, Snake Eyes version one. And then everyone else, you know, you have to have a little accent. But I'm ready for I'm ready for Yojo. Itch. You want to go first, Tim? Then continue on. Continue hmm. continue riding that train up until the point uh, at which the dreadnoughts have sabotaged it. <laughs> uh, this is really hard. Mm. 
Um, uh, five. Mm. Hello, one. And, I, and I've said so much, so I, I do have a wrap-up thought, but I'm going to, rather than sort of restate anything, uh, five. Okay. Jay? I was going to say five um, until we started recording, and then the more that I kind of flipped through it, and you know, I really got more into the dialogue, mm -hmm. that doesn't do that much to save the story so that so i'm gonna go with a six yeah i think i'm in the same boat boat with you uj that it's it's difficult to put a finger on exactly why this doesn't doesn't work it it, it does sort of sound like you know run through like a greatest hits there's a lot of great characters yeah you know we see you know see a roll call of you know the main cobras and and you know some interesting locations and but but something just sort of doesn't quite quite you know, hit the high high notes. Um, you know, talking it through, I probably am raising my you know my enjoyment of it almost a little bit. Just sort of realizing how much great dialogue there is there. Yeah. So, but so so yeah, I think I'm in the same boat as as it being about six. Uh, that's a nice comment about talking it through, talking it through with two other people. Because very small undercurrent when I read this originally, right? This had been this story had been. Um, previewed in diamond previews um diamond previews is the catalog that uh diamond publishes and this is what comic book stores have historically ordered from and as a customer you can get a copy too and this got previewed in in diamond previews i think they like did a very sh small interview with hama and then showed two or three pages you know this is when you order it and it's going to come out two months later and what it actually came out a very small undercurrent. I felt a, sort of alone, right? Like, you know, because G.I. Joe was back, but like, and Hama was back, but this wasn't working. And sort of, who could I turn to? So part of why I said so many times at the beginning of this recording and before, I have so much to say, I can't wait to talk to you about this, is that I've always really wanted to chop this story up and talk about it, because there is a lot to like. Um, my, my sort of wrap up thought is, uh, is twofold. One, um, if you just cut out the final two pages, uh, it would, uh, it would work better for me and I can see it definitely working better for Jay. Uh, the ending would be a little abrupt, but, but overall, um, doing this kind of story, you know, uh, Marvel did it with, uh, X Factor Forever. They got Louis Simonson to come back and write sort of one more X-Factor story, sort of around the time of the end of her run. There's this X-Men monthly comic happening right now called X-Men Legends. In fact, uh, the, the, there's gonna be two upcoming issues in a month or two from Larry Hama. Um, but uh, these arcs, they're getting writers who did X-Men runs in the 80s and 90s to come back and do like a two issue story set during their run to maybe like answer a question that never got answered or fill in a hole. and uh, and I don't think X-Men Legends has been great so far. Uh, and I think the difference is, if you have a Larry Hama start at issue 156 and you give him a wide berth and say, sort of do whatever you want, or again, this analogy of like, why don't you continue this thing from many years ago, right? Uh, what was that X-Men? Was X-Men Forever where Chris Claremont got to write mm -hmm. like, Two more, yeah. two more years, right after his like famous, infamous X Men number three, and then he quit, right? And Tom Grummet drew the the whole run. It's like what he would mm -hmm. what he might have done next. 
And I, that was just an ongoing monthly. I don't think they said you have 12 issues or you have 12 issues and 12 more issues. So the way that to compromise, right? Let's say that I don't have a magic wand. It's not like Blaylock, just hire Hama instead of yourself or Blaylock, just let Hama go for 50 or 100 issues. That's not realistic. <laughs> but two things. One, this arc should have been like five or six issues if it was going to have this much stuff. Two, what really needed to happen, and I don't think is in any way unrealistic with sort of the parameters of Devil's Due in 2001, two, and three, have Hama come back and do this like two or three more times. So tell a story that's in 95, tell a story that's in 98, tell a story that's in 99, and have a couple steps to bridge out of the Marvel run and into the IDW run. And besides Hama's difficulty in writing this way here's your outline follow it but also like you have to get to this end point so i gotta have uh billy go off so he can come back at the beginning of the devil's due run i have to have storm shadow kind of still zapped by the brainwave scanner so he can come back and struggle at the beginning of the devil's due run all the stuff with uh snake eyes and baroness like yes other people want to write gi joe that what that's what frontline is for but like man, this book is selling like crazy in 2001, 2002. Like, have Hama come back a couple times so this stuff can spread out. That's my realistic compromise. But I'm also happy that Hama's just writing an, an ongoing G.I. Joe uh, for another publisher right now. Yeah, and I think the precondition, I think, you know, maybe maybe he might have come back if this experience wasn't so so painful for him. I think the precondition for him coming back and doing more for Devil's Due in specifically storm shadow was that he would just be allowed to do his own thing aha aha good point cool so that so that was uh that was frontline issues one to four um you know interesting discussion and uh, look forward to seeing what we make of the next arc in in frontline but before we head off um let's uh, have a quick round of innuendo <laughs> attention at this moment you are now listening to talking innuendo if you are offended by words like sucking flesh wound willy pete balls crystal balls hypno shield whatever take the tape out now this is not a pop album and by the way suck my grandmother's brick in a prada handbag so if you're in the right frame of mind Specifically, my frame mind. A lot of GI Joe names can sound a little bit dirty, so can I get through a list of five GI Joe names without making my co-hosts titter? Um, Jay, uh, unmute yourself in preparation, please. Uh, okay, let's go. Windmill. Colonel Breakoff. Slipstream's Conquest. (laughs) 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 Ding, 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 ding. Colonel Colonel Breakoff was a good build-up to that. Man, I've been been looking forward to Colonel (laughs) Breakoff for months. with Conquest, though. It's been a while. It's been a while. (laughs) Uh, Jay's... uh, Hey, hey, listeners. uh, Jay's seeing Snake Eyes... Right after this, <laughs> right after this recording. So, and actually, so so am I. A uh, couple hours from now. Uh, so, cool. we sh- we should sign off. Yeah. So, uh, 
Yep. So so next time on Disavowed, we'll continue on uh, G.I. Joe Frontline 5 to 8. Over on the regular show, we're continuing to cover ARA as it comes out. So wrapping up Murder by Assassination with Part 5. And uh, then moving on to the spotlight. So after beyond that, um, where can people find you guys? Tim? A realamericanbook.com. And why not delve into the archives and have a look at some of that uh, Dave Dorman art that you've got featured on your site uh, while nice. you're there. Uh, Jay, what about you? Break Room Sketches on Facebook. And you can find uh, the site on all of the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has links to all of those places. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, contact details, etc. As well as links to the YouTube uh, versions of this show. Uh, we're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingjoe. So a big thanks to all of our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher and Justin, who are getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. There's no minimum subscription. So uh, if you're enjoying this and want to chip in and pay off some of the running costs, uh, then that would be muchly appreciated. And that's us done. But remember, nobody beats Talking Joe! A real American podcast with a guy from England. Later, wankers. Wow, that's embarrassing, but I like it.